0: Hey folks, this is Joseph Taylor, and I wanna welcome you to the Canopy Church podcast. We're a brand new church practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of Chicago. We're so glad you've joined us today. We've begun the new year by taking a big step into what's next with our official online launch. If you haven't yet joined us for an online service, consider joining us at 10 a.m. on the first and third Sundays of each month by going to canopychicago.org And clicking watch church online i hope to see you there okay let's jump in well good morning church my name is joseph and i'm proud and honored to lead canopy church alongside my wonderful wife maria who you saw just a couple minutes ago today as maria said we're closing out our series of foundational teachings called elementals before we move to a deep dive into the book of ephesians in a couple of weeks that will take most of uh, the way through the summer. It's been quite a journey. We've been following the leading of the Spirit, and today we conclude Elementals with a teaching on the Spirit. And although Last Gathering's teaching was in some ways the kind of denouement, the the climax of this whole journey where we saw that Jesus is the very center of the human story. He is the one who has been vindicated and proven to be the Lord and the King over everything and everybody. Nonetheless, I think I've been looking forward to today's teaching on the Spirit the most. Now, if you knew my story, you would know how unlikely that is, how unlikely a messenger I am for this particular message. If if you've been with us for any amount of time, you've probably already picked up on the fact that I'm a bit of a wannabe intellectual and I tend to lead with my head, which in some ways has always put me at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to the things of the Spirit. And my background has certainly not helped either growing up in a, I think what we could call a milk toast white evangelical church in the suburbs, as far as we were concerned, the Trinity was Father, Son, and Holy Bible. We were big on the sovereignty of the Father, big on the centrality of the Son, but the Spirit, well, we didn't really know what to do with Him, so He got short shrift. If we acknowledged the Spirit, it was so that He, or it, as we were probably more likely to refer to him, could just simply help us understand our Bibles. There was little room at all made for his gifts or his manifestations, let alone for his personhood and his power. For all intents and purposes, we were growing up what you could call practical cessationists. That is, believers or at least People who operated as if they believed that the signs and wonders and miraculous movements of the Spirit, like you might read about in the book of Acts, were purely for a bygone era. I was taught, explicitly, that the pursuit of experiences of the Spirit and of signs and wonders, those were for those heretical and those kind of hysterical charismatics who'd gone completely off the rails of orthodoxy and normalcy. Ours was a more staid and orderly and predictable religion. And because of that, I spent most of my time at church as a teenager sleeping through the sermons and getting my kicks elsewhere. So no, I'm not the most likely preacher of this particular message, either because of my personality or my upbringing. And yet, by the grace of God, He has led me into the deeper waters of the things of the Spirit spurred in part by my own curiosity and what I think I can say was an earnest search for the truth and by compelling examples of a few what I like to call Holy Spirit people that God has put in my life and by the simple prompting of the Spirit himself in my adult years. He has led me to some undeniable realities about and experiences of the Spirit. Realities and experiences that have come to transform and, and really in some ways define my faith and my very life. I think of the moment almost four years ago when watching a video about church planting alongside Maria, I was suddenly overcome by an uncontrollable laughter which quickly moved into weeping and which ended with me on my face in our living room in awe and wonder before the God who I knew in that moment saw me and loved me as a son. I think of the moment not too long thereafter when sitting at the dinner table, I I can still see it in my mind's eye like it was yesterday. Maria and I were quietly and discreetly discussing how risky it would be to do a church planting residency out in California, something we were considering at the time. This whole thing, this whole church planting thing, it felt like such a long shot. And we kept the conversation kind of out of earshot of our kids. And I can assure you, we had avoided using the term church planting around them. And yet, our then five-year-old daughter, Mia Jane, turned to me at the dinner table, almost out of nowhere, and said matter-of-factly, It'll be okay. You're a church planter, Daddy. Maria and I immediately locked eyes. What do you mean, baby? I asked. She went on. You're a church planter. You're going to tell people about Jesus. How do you know that? I asked her. And she replied, When Jesus tells me things, I don't hear it, but I just know. (laughs) And just like that, she turned back to her spaghetti or whatever and continued eating. Amen, little Mia Jane. And so here we are. No, I may not be the most likely messenger for this teaching, but I am honored to bring a word today about who this spirit is and about what that same spirit is up to. Let's dive into our text for this morning from John chapter 16, which you heard Sab read just a few minutes ago. Please open there in your Bible if you haven't already, beginning with verse 5. I'll be reading today from the New Living Translation. First, let's uh, let's get some context for today's passage. So we're jumping in here in John 16, verse 5, right into the middle of what is known as Jesus' farewell discourse. You'll notice if your Bible has red letters in it which indicate the words of Jesus, you'll notice that there's a whole lot of red before this, and there's a whole lot of red after This farewell discourse spans John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, and it is widely considered one of Jesus' most important set of teachings, second only, perhaps, to the Sermon on the Mount. John's gospel places this set of teachings at the intimate Last Supper with his 11 closest friends, on what Jesus alone at this moment knew was to be his last night with them before his death. I suppose it's not even quite right to call this a teaching. It's not particularly didactic or lectury. This is Jesus at his most vulnerable. As we read the farewell discourse, we can hear the agony and the heartache, the sense of imminence and urgency in Jesus' words. One of the twelve had already left to carry out his plans to betray his rabbi. Jesus knows he is coming to the end. He knows his time with these 11 apprentices is almost up. And that after investing his heart and his soul in them for the last three years, this whole thing is soon going to be riding on them. So these are some of Jesus' most powerful, candid, and pressing thoughts on the eve of his execution. So I think we would do well to pay attention here to Jesus' closing arguments, as it were. And so we read in verse 5. But now I am going away to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Let's pause right there. This is one of the most astounding and perplexing things Jesus ever says with all the miracles He's done, with all of the history-shaping, world-changing ideas that He has dropped on them, and with all the sacrifices that each of them has made in order to orient their entire lives around Him and to follow Him, not to mention with all the joy and the intimacy and the camaraderie of their shared lives together, how in the world could it be better for them that Jesus go away than that He stay? And for those of us who today, in spite of the great span of time separating his earthly life from our own, for us having been so intrigued and compelled and life alteringly affected by this rabbi from Nazareth, we can only imagine how incredible it would be to have him with us here in the flesh. Wouldn't it be best if if he were here? Isn't it better to have the Messiah with you in person So how on God's good earth can he say that it is best for them that he go away? The alternative, that is, whatever it is that his departure would bring, would have to be absolutely out of this world. And as it turns out, it is. He continues in verse 7. It is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. The advocate... The Greek word here is parakletos, often translated as paraclete. And it's a word that we should absolutely pay attention to. Some translators render it as encourager or comforter or counselor. Now paraclete is essentially a legal term. It means a legal advocate, someone who comes to your defense when you are facing legal jeopardy. So why would Jesus use this term? Why the legal connotation? Well, if you read back into chapter 15, Jesus has just shared with them the amazingly good news that they are going to be hated, rejected, and persecuted because of their association with Jesus. He says, Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. He says, This and the news of his imminent departure are why they are stunned into grief-filled silence. But the implications for this hatred and this rejection that, they were, that Jesus has just promised that they're going to face, they were not just relational or interpersonal. They were also legal, moral, and, and physical or bodily. In other words, the stakes were not just that they might lose friends or that they might have falling outs with their families, although those things were going to happen as well. The stakes were also that they would be sued, judged, convicted, imprisoned, and even executed solely because of their belief and proclamation that Jesus was Lord. They would be deemed as heretics and liars by those perceived to have the moral high ground. And when they faced this hatred, they would be forced to ask themselves, as all those who have faced hatred before have had to ask, am I in the wrong? Have you ever faced hatred before? More to the point, have you ever faced hatred or rejection or judgment from an authority figure? It begs the question, have I done something wrong? Do I deserve this treatment? And when faced with these questions, when faced with this opposition, especially opposition with the power to convict and judge and punish you, everyone needs an advocate. Walter McMillan knew this all too well. In 1988, Walt, a black man and the owner of a thriving small business in Monroeville, Alabama, was arrested for the murder of a white woman. McMillan had no prior arrests. He had no apparent motive for murdering a woman whom he had never met. There was no physical evidence whatsoever tying into the crime, and he had numerous alibis who testified to investigators that he was with his church at a Friday night fish fry at the time of the murder. But none of this daunted prosecutors or the eventual jury, nor did the fact that he was accused, first accused by a drug addicted white man who, as it would later turn out, had been pressured by officers to perjure himself by naming McMillan as the culprit. And so, so McMillan was arrested, and for reasons that continue to baffle observers and legal experts to this day, he was immediately put on death row, 15 months before his trial would even begin. The eventual trial lasted only a day and a half. Walt was found guilty and sentenced by the jury to life in prison. And yet, extraordinarily, the judge overruled the jury's life sentence and unilaterally decided to impose the death penalty. After a day and a half long trial, as if 15 months sitting in a death row cell hadn't already made that a foregone conclusion. Walt desperately needed an advocate. He needed someone to stand up for him, to stand beside him, and to argue, this is wrong, this is false, this man is innocent. And he got one in an idealistic young Harvard Law graduate, a Christian, mind you, named Brian Stevenson. Stevenson had just started an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative. And when Stevenson saw the paltry case that the state of Alabama had used to convict McMillan, he took on his case. And then, through a painfully protracted series of appeals and through the uncovering of exonerating evidence, the recanting of the testimony of the state's key witness, McMillan's conviction was eventually overturned, the charges were dismissed, and on March 2, 1993, McMillan walked out of prison a free man. He was, of course, innocent all along, but the truth of his innocence was shrouded and disregarded in lies and falsehoods. He needed an advocate to defend his innocence. He needed someone to step in and to help reveal the truth. Stevenson was that man. We could say he was Macmillan's paraclete, his advocate and counselor, his defender. To those who haven't seen or read Just Mercy, sorry for the spoilers, but you know, you're a bit late to the party. And Macmillan's story and Stevenson's story needs to be told, as does that of the Equal Justice Initiative. They are doing God's work. And it's a very fitting illustration of the work of the paraclete because he loves to advocate for those on the underside of power. It's kind of his thing freedom for the oppressed, the vindication of the innocent and the wrongfully accused. I think this is why we're so riveted by podcasts like Serial or In the Dark or shows like The Innocence Files or When They See Us. Not only do we naturally and and viscerally loathe to see the miscarriage of justice, but we love to see the innocent set free and vindicated. We desire Somewhere in all of our hearts, we desire to see the truth have its day. And this is the work of the Advocate that Jesus promised. When any of us are facing opposition, judgment, or even condemnation, especially from those in positions of power or authority, we all need an Advocate. And because Jesus knew that His apprentices would face this very kind of unjust hatred and opposition. He knew that it was best that he go away so that he could send the paraclete, the advocate, to defend and vindicate the disciples and their gospel message. Jesus' resurrection from the dead would do much of the work of that vindication, and the coming advocate would do the rest. Now Jesus continues in verse 7. If I do go away then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict. Actually, let me, let me pause right there. I want you to notice the pronouns here. He doesn't say, then I will send it to you. The one whom he, was, he would send is not an it. This is not the universe or karma or some other impersonal force coming to help. An impersonal force cannot come to help. Gravity doesn't come to help you or to advocate for you. Only a person can. The paraclete is a person. A person with thoughts and feelings and hopes and desires and a will. If we skip from here down to verse 13 for a moment, we will see what Jesus calls this advocate or helper. He says, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus calls him here the spirit of truth. In Greek, this is numa ho aletheia. Numa ho aletheia. And this brings us to the real meat of today's teaching. Numa, and its Hebrew equivalent ruach, mean wind or breath or spirit. And they run deep in the scriptures. On page one of the Bible, we read that in the beginning, the earth was a formless and chaotic void. But that the Ruach was hovering over the waters, almost like a pregnant woman, ready to give birth. After that first appearance on page one, the Spirit shows up over and over throughout the pages of redemptive history. He shows up as an inspirer of divine revelation to the prophets, he shows up as a warrior and defender in desperate moments. He shows up as the supernatural inspiration and the animating power for the artisans and the craftsmen who built the tabernacle and all of its beautifully made artifacts. He shows up as a mighty wind. He shows up as a raging fire. He shows up as a gentle whisper. But his presence is fleeting and enigmatic. He's there one moment and gone the next. He's seemingly absent from the story for entire generations. And the picture we get of his character and his nature, it's like a rough sketch that's shrouded in mystery and ambiguity. But then, in the ministry of Jesus, we suddenly see the presence and the character of the Spirit come into vivid detail and color. In the Gospels, we read that at Jesus' baptism, Those present witnessed the spirit descending on him in the form of a dove. And his cousin John, who was baptizing him, knew that this meant that Jesus was the Messiah because God had told him that the one on whom you see the dove descend and remain was Israel's long-awaited king. The spirit remaining was absolutely key. Because there were plenty of other stories of the Spirit coming upon people in in the past, in these fleeting moments where they were filled with the Spirit, where they experienced the inspiration, the joy, the power, and the revelation of that filling. Kind of similar to what I experienced that day four years ago with my laughter in the Spirit. One time, even the corrupt and volatile King Saul was filled with the Spirit and he prophesied right alongside the other prophets of Israel. But these were only fleeting moments. It was so appropriate that the Spirit should be seen as a dove because a dove is a very skittish and sensitive creature, here one moment and gone the next. A dove is a wild and elusive creature, and so too is the Spirit. The Spirit never Remained. He was like the wind, and you never knew when or where he might blow. But with Jesus, it was different. On him, the Spirit descended, and there he stayed. And all the things that Jesus did from that day forward were done in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit was the source of Jesus' power, of his remarkable teaching authority. The Spirit was the one opening his apprentice's ears to hear and receive the truth. The Spirit was the one who would later allow them to remember and to write down all that they had heard Jesus teach because he is the Spirit of truth. And as Jesus taught and performed miracles and dismantled the status quo religion of his day and did all the other incredible things that he did, he was showing us the true power and nature of the Spirit. The Spirit heals. The Spirit illuminates. But most of all, the Spirit sets people free. This is why Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah that the Ruach of Yahweh was upon him, anointing him to do what? To proclaim freedom. Freedom for the captives, freedom for the oppressed, a freedom found in the revelation of truth. This is why he taught in John chapter 8 that, quote, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Jesus understood that the truth was illuminated and animated by the spirit of truth himself. And that the truth was the only real and lasting. The truth. Let me say that again. The truth was the only place real and lasting freedom could be found. Truth and freedom go hand in hand. Without truth, there is no real freedom. Lies, deceptions, false ideas, these are prisons which lock people into false narratives about what is real and what is good and about who they really are. But the spirit of truth penetrates these false narratives. He takes a pin to the bubbles of self-deception and wishful thinking. He exposes the sometimes awful and horrific truths that people would rather not see or have seen. The Spirit shines His light in those dark places and brings them out into the open so they can be seen for what they really are. And once seen in that light, the Spirit lovingly helps us deal with them. The Apostle Paul would later pick up this thread in his second letter to the Corinthians when he wrote, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But the central truth that the Spirit is always fixated on revealing. In the heart and mind of every individual, in every culture, and in every generation, the central truth that he keeps coming back to is that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus and Jesus alone is the king over everyone and everything. The wind of the Spirit is always blowing in that direction. This is the central truth that leads to the deepest and the most fundamental freedom that human beings can experience as each individual finds their place in the story where Jesus is the central character. Okay, let's hop back up to verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Notice the fact that the Spirit here has suddenly changed roles. He's suddenly gone from defense attorney to prosecution. Yes, he would advocate and prove the innocence of the followers of Jesus, at least before God himself, who were soon going to be sued and persecuted and judged. But now we see the Spirit switching to the other side of the courtroom. Suddenly, He has grabbed a gavel and a robe, and He is judging the judges. He is convicting the convictors. And what would He convict them of? Jesus lists three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. We don't have time to unpack all that is wrapped up in what Jesus is saying here, but the long and short of it is that those who were soon to oppose and persecute these apprentices of Jesus would be so sure that they were in the right. They would be utterly convinced of it. And the word here for righteousness, the Greek word, can also be translated as justice. The two terms are virtually interchangeable in the scriptures. There can be almost no conversation about moral righteousness without also simultaneously talking about social justice. You cannot have one without the other. In Israel, from the foundational document of the nation uh, in the Torah, which was kind of their constitution, the God who rescued the slaves from Egypt made clear that he was calling them to personal morality, righteousness, and... That he was calling them to be on the side of the poor and the vulnerable. Justice. When this God called for justice, he wasn't talking about protecting the rich from the poor, he wasn't talking about protecting the native born from the foreigners in their midst. On every occasion, Yahweh speaks about justice as protecting the poor. And the foreigner, along with widows and orphans, who were in trouble in a society that was, that was already rigged toward men and wealthy people. A constant concern in, in the Old Testament is that the rich have the ears of the judges while the poor do not. This is injustice. As Dr. King has said, righteousness is the personal dimension of morality, and justice is the public dimension. And both would become very pertinent in time to the disciples because of the hatred and the opposition that they would soon face. Just think for a moment about the young Apostle Paul, if you're familiar with the story. At this time, he was known as a Pharisee, and he went by the name of Saul. And he would very soon be what he later describes as breathing out murderous threats against the Jesus followers. He was going around having them thrown in prison and he was approving of their mob execution in the case of Stephen. And he did all of that, believing in his heart of hearts that he was on God's side, that he was doing all of that for God. But in time, the Spirit would show him just how dead wrong he was. The Spirit showed him that he had in fact been on the wrong side of history and more importantly, on the wrong side of God. The Spirit was the one who would convict young Saul of, as Jesus says, sin, righteousness, and judgment. He would vindicate the innocent proclaimers of the truth. And this is a critical, a central role that only the Spirit can play. Human conscience and the the universal longing for goodness It can get us pretty far in discerning right from wrong, in discerning good from evil, and in in discerning a life that leads to fullness, discerning that from a life that leads to spiritual death. But a conscience can also be warped. The heart can also, I should say, will also on its own lead us completely astray. The hardening of the heart and the warping or the searing of the conscience is one of the most horrific things that can happen to a person. The prophet Jeremiah once wrote that the human heart is deceitful beyond anything else. We can become so convinced of our own rightness and another's wrongness. And in fact, we love to become convinced of it. Self-righteousness is one of the most gratifying human experiences there is. There's just nothing quite like the sensation of moral superiority. But when the pneuma Aletheia, the spirit of truth, shows up, he starts cutting right through all of that. Through all of the pretense and power and superiority, he brings the high and lofty down low and he raises up the lowly. He cuts like a surgeon through all the trickery and the twisted logics that we have lived by before he showed up. So who is this spirit? The one whom it is better that we have than Jesus in the flesh? He is not the spirit of political power. He is not the spirit of victory through warfare. He is not the spirit of entertainment or of pleasure or of wealth. None of those spirits would lead to the freedom that Jesus came to unleash. Only the spirit of truth can do that. All throughout this series, we've been in the pursuit of truth. We've been piecing together the basic building blocks of faith based on our understanding and our desire for truth. We've learned that we have to embrace the truth wherever we may find it because as Augustine, a 4th century bishop from North Africa, as he first asserted, all truth belongs to God. The truth of the scientist, the truth of the philosopher or the poet or the theologian or even the lawyer or the judge. It all belongs to God. And ultimately, it must all be built on His reality or it will be proven false. Now, early on in our series, I argued that the truth kind of builds on itself over time, that we can't move on to more advanced truths or applications until the fundamental truths are settled. And as soon as the fundamental truths are doubted or dismantled, you begin to undermine the advanced applications. So, in other words... We don't get a rover landing on Mars until we have the doctrine of gravitational force and aeronautics established. We don't get the internet and these amazing little gadgets. We don't get those things until we have basic mathematics in place. We don't get universal human rights until we have the doctrine of the Imago Dei firmly established. So there is a progression to revelation And as much as this applies to truths of general revelation, it applies doubly so to the truths of the Spirit, the truths of what we have been calling divine revelation. What I'm describing here is a doctrine known as progressive revelation. The 19th century Presbyterian theologian Charles Hodge described it like this. The progressive character of divine revelation is recognized in relation to all the great doctrines of the Bible. What at first is only obscurely intimated is gradually unfolded in subsequent parts of the sacred volume until the truth is revealed in its fullness. This is why it can sometimes seem like the Bible contradicts itself or why the Old Testament can seem so different from the New. It's because the Spirit has revealed, slowly, over the course of time, through history, more and more of the truth about who God is and about how life is supposed to work. And Jesus is the key that unlocks it all. Here's how Christian apologist Don Stewart put it. Progressive revelation does not mean to say that the Old Testament is somehow less true than the New Testament. The progress was not from untruth to truth, it was from less information to more full information. Progressive revelation is not a movement from error to truth, but from truth to truth, from lesser truth to greater truth, from the provisional to the permanent, from the inadequate to the perfect. You can see this with regard to slavery. It almost seems in the scriptures as if slavery is being sanctioned when, in fact, it was first being regulated, then it was being critiqued. And within the teachings of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, you have the very seeds for the total abolition of slavery in time. Jesus was pointing to this very notion when, in verse 12, he says, There is so much more I want to tell you but you can't bear it now. Now, he may have meant that as simply as, you guys are super bummed out about all the things I've told you, and I don't want to pile on. But at the same time, he is describing in that verse the entire premise of progressive revelation, that there is only so much people can handle at one time. There is only so much a given generation can deal with. And God, in his unbelievable patience, reveals the truth little by little over time, often even condescending to work within broken human systems in order for His truth to eventually come fully out into the light of day in time. Now hear me out because this this doctrine absolutely needs some nuance. I want to be clear on what I am not saying. I am not saying that whatever people believe lately is the ultimate end of that progress. As we saw last week, that that is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Because there is such a thing as moral regression. There is such a thing as people and places where the progressive revelation of the Spirit has not yet penetrated. No. Progressive revelation is not the doctrine of perpetual human progress. It is not Utopianism, it is simply the belief that God only reveals over time what people are able to bear and that his truth often builds on itself. Let me reframe the whole idea this way. Progressive revelation is like the work of the Spirit in each progressive generation. And it's a progress that we can only see as we chart the movement of the Spirit through history. Many people have read the book of Acts, and they've read about the day of Pentecost, this day of power, this this watershed day where everything changed. And they've been enthralled with the dynamism, the expansion, with the miracles. And rightly so. This was when the Holy Spirit was doing some of His best work. But in some ways... He was only just getting started because there have been many subsequent revival or renewal movements down through history and all around the world, and they didn't all look like the book of Acts. They shared many common features without question, the central one being the confession that Jesus is Lord, but each movement was also unique. And in some cases, the renewal movements were building on the work of the spirit from previous generations. I think the abolition movement in the UK and the US is proof positive of this, led, as it was, by Christians who were essentially the children of the revival movement known as the Great Awakening. But I also think of the Azusa Street Revival in America in the early 20th century. If you're not familiar with what God did at Azusa Street... It's well worth your time to read up on it, folks. This was a revival movement that began in Los Angeles, led by a black preacher, a one-eyed son of former former slaves named William Seymour. And through William and a small, diverse, and pretty unimpressive band of Jesus-loving devotees, the Spirit sparked a movement that has now spread around the globe to become the modern Pentecostal Church, a movement which sees more conversions, more miracles and more of the raw spiritual power of the Holy Spirit, especially in Latin America and Africa than virtually any other modern Christian movement. Azusa Street was like the Book of Acts in some ways, but it was also truly unique. We run into problems when we become convinced that it must be like that again. Each generation so often wants to replicate what the Spirit did in previous generations. But what does the Spirit say through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43, verse 19? Look, I am doing a new thing. I love how N.T. Wright captures this notion. He writes... Part of the genius of genuine Christianity is that each generation has to think it through afresh. Precisely because, so Christians believe, God wants every single Christian to grow up in understanding as well as trust. The Christian faith has never been something that one generation can sort out in such a way as to leave their successors with no work to do. Like a young man inheriting a vast fortune, such a legacy could just make you lazy. All you'd have to do would be to look things up in the book or to remember how it was when your favorite pastor used to do it. And that would be it. No room for character. No room for full human maturity, never mind full Christian maturity. Some versions of Christianity are constantly trying to build up that sort of accumulated capital, but it can't be done. The Christian faith is kaleidoscopic and most of us are colorblind. It is multi-dimensional and most of us manage to hold at most two dimensions in our heads at any one time. It is symphonic and we can just about whistle one of the tunes. So we shouldn't be surprised if someone comes along and draws our attention to other colors and patterns that we hadn't noticed. We shouldn't be alarmed if someone sketches a third, a fourth, or even a fifth dimension that we had overlooked. We ought to welcome it if a musician plays a new part of the harmony to the tune we thought we knew. Now, I know we've covered a lot of ground this morning, but bear with me because we're nearly there. All of this drives me to this central question this morning. What is the Spirit doing in our time? What is He up to? What is He saying to us? I know many of us have learned about what the Spirit has done before, and we just want Him to do that again. But what is the Spirit doing now? Is it another day of Pentecost? Is it another Azusa Street Revival? Lord willing, we will live to see the Spirit move in ways like that in our lifetimes. But perhaps, as Frodo says in The Fellowship of the Ring, our own adventure will turn out to be quite different. I think we can see the Spirit moving in our day, in this season, in three specific ways. The first way is common to the day of Pentecost and Azusa and all the other revival movements. And that's because it is always central to what the Spirit is doing. It was our subject last week and you've heard it woven throughout this teaching this morning. The Spirit is moving so that men and women, boys and girls of every race, class, and culture would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the world, and the central figure in the human story. The Spirit is showing Him to be the Logos of the ancient Greeks, The single, central figure who brings coherence and unity to the entirety of the cosmos. The Spirit is moving so that each and every person, that means you and I and your friends and your children and your neighbors, your old college roommates and those random people that you run into at the grocery store or the gym, not to mention folks on the other side of the planet whom He might be sending you to reach. The Spirit is wooing each of them to see the truth and the beauty of this gospel so that each would come to bow down and worship this risen Savior who bled and died, who was raised to new life, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, and who is coming again to judge all people. We can have little doubt that the Spirit is moving in people's hearts to see this belief come to define a new generation. This is the central truth. Everything else flows from there. And if you have never responded to that truth by repenting of your sin and confessing that Jesus is Lord, there is no better moment to do that than right now. You can do that by hitting the prayer button below and one of our host team members would be honored to chat with you and to pray with you and to help you take a next step in your journey towards Jesus. If you have responded to the truth of the gospel before, keep listening. Because secondly, I think we can sense the Spirit calling us to give Him fresh ears and wide open eyes. To hear His voice as if for the first time. Maybe the Bible has struck you lately as a bit stale or a bit problematic. Maybe sin in your own life has crept in and it has hardened your heart or dulled your senses. The Holy Spirit wants to help us penetrate the lies that have fueled those things. And he wants to set us free in a totally new way. He wants to show us why it is truly better that we have Him as a helper and an encourager and as an advocate than if we had Jesus with us right here. This is part of the beauty of a moment, like the tumult of our current cultural moment. In some ways, all the old expectations are gone. Many of the old ideas have suddenly been churned up, and in that churn and in that void, there is a new opportunity to see the Spirit and to hear Him speaking to us. I recognize that there is mystery in how we hear Him and how we understand Him. But Jesus said that His sheep would know His voice and they would follow Him. So let's turn our listening ears to our Savior and our watching eyes to Him. And having given Him our open eyes and ears, third, And finally, I believe we must recognize that the Spirit is moving in this generation to convict people about the sins of racism and white supremacy, sins that have plagued our nation since white folks first washed up on its shores. Is it not, after all, the Holy Spirit who has been highlighting Isaiah 61 about the proclamation of the freedom for the captives in our midst over the last year? Have we not all been compelled by that text? And is it not the Holy Spirit who is animating the desire more broadly for justice? Is it not the Spirit who is, who is revealing the unique application of the Imago Dei to the belief that black lives matter? Is it not the Holy Spirit who is highlighting before the watching world the moral authority of the black church in America? An authority that the white evangelical church currently does not bear, in part, Because 80% of white evangelicals refuse to disabuse themselves of a racist political platform built on a multitude of conspiracies and falsehoods and led, at the moment, by a prolific liar and egotist? It's as if God has placed mysteries of the faith in the black experience in America. We understand the cross of Jesus Christ more fully when we look at the lynching tree. We understand the shedding of Jesus' innocent blood more fully when we look at the shedding of the innocent blood of black and brown folks in our history. We understand the Gospel more fully when we see it through the lens of suffering as our black brothers and sisters have been uniquely suited to do. We understand the foundational concepts of righteousness and justice more fully when we hear them from black voices like Dr. King or Howard Thurman or James Cone or John Perkins. And we feel the conviction of sin and justice and judgment when we read Jamar Tisby showing us how our white forebears, how the white forebears of the American evangelical church have been complicit, and in many cases, directly responsible for the oppression, the marginalization, and the economic dispossession of black folks throughout American history, right up until the present moment. White money has been used to perpetuate white advantage. And it is all built on the pernicious and persistent lie that white lives are worth more than black and brown lives. And we must partner with the Spirit to say, we will not swallow that lie anymore. We will not let white hegemony define our generation. This is why I must agree with Chicago's own Reverend Charlie Dates when he asserts, that there is no better place in America to encounter the true gospel today than in the black pulpit. The spirit of truth is leading us in this journey. He is not tame, but he is good. And this whole journey begins with a very simple prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you pray that with me?